Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Uh, good morning. All right. Oh, that's the quickest I think the, the volume has ever dipped. I usually assume I'm going to be talking for, I don't know what to do when it gets quiet so fast. Um, good morning, everybody. Yes. Okay. Happy that you're all here. Um, my name's Ryan. I realize with how many new people are here every week that you may have actually never met me before because <laughs> I've spent the last two weeks uh, sick with COVID. Um, and so my name's Ryan. I'm the teaching pastor here, and um, I am happy to be back. I don't recommend COVID. Zero stars. N- not good holiday fun. Um, but if you want to have really hallucinatory dreams, I, it's, I'm, I'm all for it. So um, it was, I'm, I'm glad to be here. It, it could have been worse, but at the same time, I had a lot of opportunity to rest and be taken care of by my beautiful wife, so thank you for doing that and taking care of me. Um, I am also, I, I head up a teaching team, and so what you've seen, if you've been here the last two weeks, you've been taken care of by Barb, and if there's, I would point you to be taken care of by Barb no matter what, and so if you've been here, thank you, Barb, for covering for Danny and myself as we've been sick, so round of applause for Barb. Holding down the fort for everybody for the last two weeks, um, that's been one of Barb's greatest gifts to our community is that when so much has changed, she's stepped in and she's stepped up in a really big way. Um, I want to start us off by, if you are new here as of 2022, uh, we start every year with a vision statement, and I want to put it up. Um, because this is what we started with in 2022, that we wanted our year to be defined by doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly. And we started with a prayer that, um, I mean, had 2022 gone exactly how I would have planned, we would have prayed this every week. And of course, things change and uh, the world is rapidly evolving. But I wanted to bring us back to this because if you're new to our community, I still think that this prayer um, is really purposeful for what we are up to. And and I wrote, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit and a growing knowledge of your Son, could we do justice with you, love mercy for each other, walk humbly for ourselves, all for the sake of making your name great, through love, and all the places we live, work, and play, and all of the new places where your Spirit will call us. And so as we are a community who, I mean, if you've, come, if you've come here because of the freeways sign, then you know our plan. And if you've gone to the bathroom out in the, or you've seen the sign, learning to live in love like Jesus. And that is our goal. That is our vision as a church. Um, and as a teaching pastor, I have the privilege today to continue in our series of the parables. And we are teaching on the parables of Jesus, because who else would we, who else's parables would we be teaching on? I don't know if there's anyone else that's, when you say parables, they are the parables of Jesus by default. But the, um, the point of all of this is to form in us a new creation, 
imagination. I often think that our imagination as Christian people is meant to be reformed by the person of Jesus Christ so that we look at the world with new eyes, so that we interpret what we see, what we experience through the lens of what Jesus came to teach us, and so that our imagination would actually take on something about new creation. Today we are going to go through the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you have a Bible, and I really hope that you do, or if you have an app, open up to Luke chapter 10. Um, And then I don't know how you do a bookmark on a Bible app, but we're also going to be going to Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 13. So put a bookmark in all those places, and we're going to just pop around to a few different spots. But to start us off, I want to bring up um, my, my Auntie Val. She's going to read for us the parable today. So let me get you a mic. Mm-hmm. Good morning, church. It's right here. Oh, it's up there. Oh, you want it up here? Yeah. So I'm reading all of this? All of it. Okay. The Parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is, the writ- what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him back to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Perfect. Thank you. Let's hear it. Let's hear it for Val. I sprung it on her I, about five minutes ago. I said, do you want to come up and read? So um, 
I just thought maybe a little break from hearing me talk before I now spend the whole time talking. So, um, we, I could be guessing here, but my assumption is this is probably the most well-known parable, just broadly. You don't even have to have gone to church to understand or to have heard this concept of a good American. I have some slides of other places where this idea pops up. We see a good Samaritan jumps into a burning building to rescue trapped children. This is all just a list of good Samaritan headlines. And let's go to the next one. More good Samaritan. People rescuing each other off of train tracks and jumping in and helping. And we have these stories that pop up of of this is what we call a stranger helping another stranger that they have no real reason to other than just their heart was moved for, from c- compassion to help, right? Like this is the general understanding. Although most of the time that we hear these stories, okay, we can go now um, back to the text actually. Um, most of the time that when we hear these stories, it's with this assuming, this assumption that it's because we're on this same team. Because we're on the same team, even though I don't know this person, um, I'll hop in and help. Because I would hope that if I was in that situation, somebody would hop in and help me. Um, I want to make sure that especially as we look at familiar texts, what often happens with me, what often happens with us, is when we've heard something over and over and over again, um, it's really, really hard to learn anything new. It's really hard to not translate it with all of the ways that we've heard it prior. Um, I have a really cool job. My job is that I get to sit at home and watch sermons a lot. <laughs> I get to prepare to teach a lot. I get to sit and I get to listen to good Bible teaching a lot. It is a really cool part of my job. And so I was at home just trying to um, do some studying for this and I was watching and any preacher that you enjoy has given a sermon most likely on this text. And so I was able to go watch sermons by Billy Graham and R.C. Sproul and uh, all of these people who are like the big names, I was like, I just want to hear what their heart kind of, what their heartbeat is for this verse. And then pretty quickly I got really discouraged because I'm watching all these like experts teach this and I'm like, okay, I need to go watch somebody teach this really poorly. I need to like set up my expectations for myself differently. Um, but I think what we are called to do in a text that we are so familiar with is that we check our heart that says, I've seen this and I've heard this. Because the Bible calls us to have ears to hear and eyes to see, to be paying attention to what the living word is trying to teach us. Very often, the text will call us to challenge where we are and what we need to do to respond rightly to Christ. It calls us to have a childlike faith, right? Matthew 18 to prevent this overcomplication that tends to happen where we overcomplicate things and we try and, and it 
ends up something that we're thinking about and we don't actually do anything about it, that the childlike faith often will move us to just a very simple following. And then there are other places like 1 Corinthians 13 where it says, when I was a child, I thought, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so there are two texts that are calling us that one towards the tendency for us to um, oversimplify, that some things are actually really complicated and some things we really need to think through, wrestle with and treat with spiritual maturity. And so I think that when we look at a text, um, our temptation often can be either to overcomplicate or oversimplify. And I want to make sure that as we are reading t- today's text that we kind of have that question up in us. Where might I be oversimplifying this text or where might I be overcomplicating it? So I want to go back to the text because, and we'll just kind of walk through it. Um, Rob, at 9.55, can you flash a flashlight at me? Thank you. Because I'm not, I, I see a very big clock and my brain doesn't compute numbers. And so I'm like, that's all abstract when I'm teaching. Um, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you've been reading the Bible for any amount of time, you know that this isn't the first time this has happened. Very often, these experts in the law, which are not like case lawyers that we have now, these would have been Bible experts. An expert in the law would have been an expert in the first five books of the Old Testament. So they knew the Old Testament front and back, and they were starting to get exhausted of this message of grace that Jesus came to teach, and it was offensive to them. And so the more that his ministry went on, the more you'll see these people who were experts in the Old Testament stand up, which at the time was a symbol of respect, and then you'll see that they're trying to trap Jesus in these kinds of questionings. It says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And already we see that the question is off. What must you do to inherit anything? That's not how inheritances work. An inheritance is you are born into a specific family. You are related to a person. You have been bestowed something that you can't do anything to have. So already we see that the lawyer's question is hinting that there's something happening in his heart that's not totally lining up. Jesus, knowing and having experienced this in the past, knows that, he's, that they're attempting to trap him, knowing that if they can just get Jesus to say, follow me, put your trust in me, ignore this thing called the law, follow me, that all of a sudden they, they pull up their key witness of Moses and say, well, what about these things? Because ultimately, if they can trap him in heresy, if they can trap him in idolatry, they can turn him over to the courts. They can end this whole movement as long as they can prove that he's being blasphemous. And they're constantly trying to trap him in that space. What is written, and so Jesus responds, what is written? in the law, how do you read it? So we have this example here of where it's like, whoa, 
uh, Moses is my key witness. You kind of cut me off at the pass there. I'm a little taken back. And so he quotes Leviticus 19. So I'm going to read for you Leviticus 19, uh, verse 17 through 19. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then he's also including a part here in chapter 19, verse 33. It says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so this was a very common way of responding, and we've heard this before, right, where, where another l- lawyer stands up and says, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? And then he says the greatest commandments are, are summed up in these two things, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19. So next. Excuse me. So here I think that um, I don't want to assume anything that's not there, but if, if I know anything about Jesus, it's that when he is being asked these questions where he knows a person's heart is in some other place, he needs to get to that heart level of what is up. And I want to suggest... I want to put out there that Jesus in this moment was a little sarcastic because what we read here is he goes, okay, you've answered correctly. Just go do that. It's Jesus's way of saying good luck with that. Good luck with that. Yeah, if you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself every day without fail, then you will just do that, and you won't need grace. Of course, go do these things. Go live perfectly, and you won't need me at all. Do this, what you just said, and you will live. Knowing that he's kind of trapped here, knowing that Jesus being kind of the masterful turning the story on his head here, um, the lawyer sort of switches gears here, and he goes, okay, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So there's this theme. There are themes throughout text, and so I'm very big on this way of studying scripture scripture called narrative and it's looking at how does this story fit in with the larger story and what stories are at play here and how does this fit into Luke in Luke if you read you'll see that there's this constant thing coming up of people trying to justify themselves all the time saying well I've done this work I've tried to do this Lord where did we not serve you? And all of these things where everybody's trying to come up with these reasons on why, based on their behavior, they should be able to get eternal life. As long as I do these things, have these things, then we don't actually need to rely on the grace and free gift of Christ. 
That is a sub-theme in Luke happening all the time. And we see here, of course, Jesus is not trying to point people to, okay, if you just do this list, then you'll have eternal life because that is salvation through works. And we know that Jesus isn't about that. What he's trying to say here is that what you just told me is going to be impossible for you to do. And so the, the conversation starts to switch here because the lawyer knows that this really obnoxious message of grace that Jesus brings is something, he's taking it down that road again. And so the lawyer switches it and he goes, okay, then let's try to create a caveat. Let's try to find out who's my neighbor so that I know who I have to care for and who I don't. And what we know is that at the time, what we just read in Leviticus is that they had a couple categories of how to treat people. They had your neighbor. They had the person who was a fellow Jew. That was one category. That was uh, someone who's close to you. Then they had the outsider, a person who would occasionally travel, and you would put on this temporary hospitality, and you would welcome them while they are with you as your own. But there is a third category, too, called your enemies. Psalm 139.21, it's that prayer of, Lord, don't I hate those who hate you? Don't I detest those who detest you? So there were these categories where there was, a, there was full open room to treat those, to love those as yourself that were close. Then there was the outsider who you would make room for. Then there were enemies. And Jesus starts telling this story. In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jerusalem being about like 2,400 feet elevation, about an 18-mile-ish hike down to Jericho, um, this would be the equivalent of a person starting a story like this. Um, imagine there's a person driving their car through Chesterfield Square at like 2 a.m. and it breaks down. And they just happen to be wearing like all blue. Or Harvard Park or like West Con- Fill in the blank of wherever a scary neighborhood would be for you. One where you might not want your car to break down. That's where the story starts. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Let's pull up the picture of that. It's a a couple slides up. There's a picture of a road here. So this is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's not very wide. A lot of caves and places for people to hide. This place was so known for being an awful place to be that it had the nickname of the Way of Blood. That's the name for this road going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Let's go back to the text really quick. So we have, um, he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, this is not an insignificant part of the story because at the time, as we'll see, a priest or a Levite, if this man could have been identified as a Jew, would have been required by their profession to help out. It would have been required. But because he had no way of marking, 
he had no way of speaking, they could not tell if this person was a Jew or not. So they had to make an interpretive choice on whether this person was deserving of care. It's not an insignificant point that all of his markings, all of these things that would normally define whether or not this person was deserving of that care was there. It says, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, uh, the priests were split up into 12 groups, and they would each serve up in Jerusalem for two weeks at a time, twice a year. So they would pack up all their stuff, go to Jerusalem, serve their priestly duties, and then return on that same road. And so there was a... um, There was a reality that's happening here that as he's going back down that road, a lot of us have heard, well, he doesn't want to touch a potentially dead body. And that is true because if that were to happen, not only would that make him ceremonially unclean, he would have had to turn around, go back to Jerusalem and observe another week of cleansing and purity and all of these things to get clean again before he returned home. And so there's an inconvenience, but there's also a maybe he didn't have enough stuff packed for that trip. The inconvenience of having to plan for an extra week to go back to the temple would have been kind of hard. Regardless, a priest would have been um, expected by the profession to extend at least compassion. And the way that the word is out of that verb that says he passed by on the other side is a very strong verb. It's, it's kind of hard to translate, but it's the, it's the opposite of attending to. So the verb was, was not just that he kind of stepped around him, but he went out of his way to get as far away from this man as possible. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other's side. Now, I was reflecting on this part last night a lot because I never paid attention to the fact that the Levite would have, could have been the, the apprentice to this priest. And as the priest passes by this man who's in need, I wonder if the Levite after felt this pressure of, who am I to help this person who the priest clearly saw a reason to pass him? Who am I to help this person when the person who came before me, who outranks me, who understands the law better than I do, if he passes him and I show up and I'm carrying this man, um, that could create some tension where all of this, and it might seem arrogant that I'm helping this person that the priest chose to not help. So there's this extra pressure on the Levite who at um, the best way that we probably understand that is they're the worship leaders. So Barb passes this hurting person. Then Lila passes this hurting person. Um, They wouldn't ever do that. They would both stop and they would set everything up for him. But, um, But a Samaritan, and we have to pause here because the people who heard Jesus' teachings know how he sets up his stories. Whenever you ask Jesus a question and he starts telling a story, you should know that you're in trouble. 
because Jesus always has the harshest things to communicate through stories. And so these people know that Jesus very often would set up his stories in this, in this three-part play. It's kind of the um, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan walk into a bar. There's that like joke format, but Jesus had that same format in how he would tell stories. But when the third person would come in, they were always the one, the unexpected one who actually got it right. And so these people hearing him teach hear the word Samaritan, and I could imagine them sort of wanting to emotionally, physically get out of the room because they didn't even like saying that word. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. If you want any proof, we're going to turn really quick to Luke one chapter prior, okay? Because I think that Jesus actually sets this up one chapter prior. Uh, so this is Luke 9, verse 30, 30? 51. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, right, not these random ones that nobody knows, two of the closest ones, two of his inner circle, James and John, saw it, they said, uh, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Like, Lord, uh, they didn't set out a hotel f- for you, so why don't we just burn them up? Like, those, that's James and John. That comes a chapter prior. So what we see here is that there is this intense hatred for each other. And so when they hear Samaritan, their blood is boiling. You better not make this person the hero. As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And this is where the story turns, because the word for pity here, it's called splachnizomai, and it's this word that talks about the seat of your affections. It, it, the word is better translated as moved to your bowels. Splachnizomai is this, have you ever heard a story? When I heard what happened at Uvalde, I was moved to my bowels was sick. That same word of being moved by something happening so much that it makes you sick, that it moves you to your stomach, it's the same word that they would have used for being in love and being lovesick, right? Being moved to your bowels, being moved so deeply that it affects your body. That's the word here. That the Samaritans saw this man who by every account would have been a Jew, worthy of hatred, knowing that he would not have returned the same to him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, most likely ripping his own clothes because most people did not travel with bandages, had to rip his own clothes, putting oil and wine and put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. I want you to understand that this is not just a list of things happening in order This is Jesus trying to say he's giving everything to this man. He's inconveniencing himself. He's ripping his own clothes, providing everything he has to take care of this 
man. And he says the next day he took out two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And he says, when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Not only is he taking care of him now, not only is he giving all that he has, one thing that we aren't even paying attention to here is that that inn would have been in Jericho, a Jewish territory. There would have been a Samaritan man pulling up in Jericho, a Jewish territory, with a Jew on his donkey that has been beat up and left half dead. How does that look? As a Samaritan who's hated, he puts himself at risk just to take care of this man, knowing that he might have to put himself in harm's way just to return this man to the inn. Not only that, he'll say any extra amount that you have because if this man wakes up and he doesn't have anything to pay and he doesn't have anything to pay because he just had everything taken from him, he can't pay for his own care. And the only way that he would have been able to pay for his own care after that would have been to sell himself into slavery. So the Samaritan says, not only will I give you everything I have now, but I will make sure that this man does not incur incur a debt with you. I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Next slide. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. All of a sudden, Jesus says, stop asking who is your neighbor and start being a neighbor to people. You're asking the wrong questions. We're doing the wrong stuff when we're trying to find out who do we take care of. He says, who's hurting right here? Go be a neighbor to that person. Stop asking, is that person a neighbor to me? We make neighbors based on how we love and take care and treat each other. And the interesting thing is that this wraps up this understanding of those three categories, right? Who is my neighbor? Neighbor would have been who's the closest. Then there's the outsider who we could kind of imagine making room for because we had rules that said, welcome the outsider who comes in. And then we had enemies. Jesus says, if you're not willing to embody this sort of behavior, this sort of love, this sort of compassion for your enemies then you're asking the wrong questions because our temptation, as we see in the lawyer, is to constantly create a category of who is in, who is out, who is deserving of that kind of care. And Jesus is saying, who's the person on the road right in front of you? You know how to be a neighbor to that person. Go and do that. Who is the person that is your physical neighbor right now, I wonder if we would start to actually think, God has put me here on purpose in this community, in the the job that you have, the relationships that you have. Maybe it's that person that's right in front of your face that we're called to be a neighbor to rather than asking, are they deserving of my care? So who is our neighbor now, I have some slides that I think might adjust who they m- might be. 
There's more pictures at the end. Yeah. Here, let's go back one. Yeah. Pregnant, homeless, living in a tent in Hollywood. Long Beach reports a 62% increase in homelessness since 2020. Next. How Long Beach South Bay schools are responding to Texas school shootings. How are we being, how are we making room to listen to these kids who are having to grow up in a school system where they're terrified? How are we responding to things happening at our borders and people who are struggling and striving and hurting? Who are our neighbors? Next. This is the one that got me, and I got very distracted by this as I started to look into it. Research suggests that 15 to 30 percent of the general population is chronically lonely. During the pandemic, loneliness increased 181 percent. I want to read to you some statistics by the CDC. This is people who are looking after health, right? It says, although it's hard to measure the social isolation and loneliness precisely, there is strong evidence that many adults age 50 and older are socially isolated or lonely in ways that will put their health at risk. Recent studies have found that social isolation significantly increased a person's risk of premature death from all causes. Social isolation was associated with about a 50% increased risk of dementia. Poor social relationships was associated with a 29% increased risk of heart disease and a 32% increased risk of stroke. Loneliness was associated with with higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. Loneliness among heart failure patients was associated with a near four times increased risk of death, 68% increased risk of hospitalization, and a 50% increased risk of emergency department visits. And I'm wondering, in a world that is pressing us away from each other all the time, are we making room to visit the people in prison, the people who are elderly and old folks home that have no people to come see them, the homeless that are on the streets of L.A., the homeless that are on the streets of our neighborhoods. Sometimes I think in that same way, Jesus very often would take a parable and he would leave it open so that people could sort of pontificate about it and wonder. Jesus says here, go and do this. I really believe Jesus in this instant did not want us to overcomplicate how we translate this. He said, go and be a neighbor to the hurting person, even if it's somebody you can't stand. Because at the very end, the expert in the law where he was asked the question, who here was a neighbor to the man that was taken by the hands of robbers? He couldn't even say the Samaritan. He said the one who showed compassion. There's a study about people who are, that receive, who are in prison, that 
if you if they receive a person and they are visited by a person, the chance that they will repeat crime is 25% lower. There's something about being present with people. And I really wonder here if, as we're asking the question, like, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers that really quick, and he says, you couldn't do what you need to do to inherit eternal life. You need me. But rather than being focused on that question, how can we actually be compassionate neighbors to the people at our feet? All of them. Stop making categories. Stop stop even asking who they are because that's the wrong question. It's who's at your feet. Who's hurting? Period. Because the more that we try and divvy up who is deserving of our care, the more that we're participating with a question we aren't even meant to be asking. Rather than asking, rather than answering the question of who is our neighbor, Jesus says, who are you being a neighbor to? That's the answer here. That's what we're called to do. So I want to encourage us that as we Look here, we know that there are many ways that we could see ourselves in this story. You may feel beat up and know that Jesus in this story, that you are not the good Samaritan in one sense. Jesus is, that he rescues us, and maybe you're the innkeeper. Maybe you've been helped, and Jesus is bringing people to your feet, and he's saying, take care of these people, take care of these hurting ones. Maybe we're the innkeeper keepers. Maybe today you are the hurting person. Maybe you feel that call of like, I need to go be more present to the people at my feet. Whatever it is, I pray that the Holy Spirit would waken us up, that the church would stop talking about how to care about people, that the church would stop pontificating and arguing and debating over this because the hurting people are usually walked right over while we talk about it. While we argue about it, while we post about it, whether you're pro-social justice and you post furious things or whether you're like hesitant, all of these things, all these ways of arguing about it, we need to be the hands and the feet that actually get down, bandage wounds, give our stuff, give your time because the hurting people are at our feet. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then I'm going to bring up Sam and Rob, and then we're going to take communion. So um, if the worship team wants to come up now, and then um, as I close, too, I know that um, we'll have a time to pray at the end um, as well. So if you want prayer, we will have prayer over here where the communion table is right now. Lord, would you shape our hearts Form our hearts to, to get out of the talking about it and into the how are we going to use all that we have, all of our stuff, all of our time, our creativity, to stoop down and care for the person. How, who are you calling us to be neighbors to? Who are you calling us to be neighbors to over and against what we can't stand? what we can't agree with, what we can't bring ourselves to. 
words we can't even find ourselves to say. How can we stoop down? Even in that moment, putting ourselves at risk to care for those people that you've placed in front of our face and at our feet. Open our eyes, Lord, to see those who are hurting. And please, Lord, help us to be humble enough to see all of the ways that our talking about it actually steps over them. Help us to be doers of the word, not because it earns us salvation, but because it's an outflow of what it means to love people in this world, on king, in heaven, on, on earth as it is in heaven. Form our hearts, Lord, in your name, amen.